Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Let's take a moment and pray together before we begin our study. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. This week we read in the Torah portion some incredible and even marvelous things and some terrible things as well. We read about how Moses goes up on the mountain and the Lord gives him tablets of stone that he's written his Torah, his instruction on for Moses to bring down to the children of Israel. And while Moses is up there, the people go nuts down below. And they make a golden calf to, to worship this idol. And so it looks like they're following, following the pattern of the Egyptians who love to have idols and the nations all around the world who would make idols and then say that those idols are gods and worship them. All in the name of facilitating spiritual life. But things do not go well for Israel when they do that. At the same time, you've got the call of Bezalel, the skilled artisan and instructor, and his team to use their creative and artistic abilities to, to make the, the beautiful articles that will go into the tabernacle and ultimately uh, the sanctuary once it's built in Jerusalem. And so you've got these contrasts and you've got similarities. You've got intimacy with God on one hand, Moses going up, and then you've got people who are struggling to find intimacy with God. And when they can't find what they're looking for, they do something that really crosses the line. They, they go outside of the boundaries of what is allowed and they make an idol and they dedicate the idol to God and their feast to God, and the whole thing is just like all messed up. And so this represents for us a real challenge to think through and to understand, because this passage also moves into another very provocative topic, which has to do with uh, the, the presence of the Lord in this world. How does God make himself known. How does he want to be present? Does he only want to be invisible? If you make a molten golden sculpture and say, that's God, you've crossed the line. We see that. And it doesn't go well for Israel. But does that mean that God just wants to be far away? Does it mean that, that God is forever invisible and cannot be experienced in this world? Well, it's important to understand that among the Egyptians, like many other cultures, their view of God incarnating and being present in the world was through their king, their pharaoh, their king, their majestic ones. And they thought of pharaoh, the Egyptians thought of pharaoh as being the incarnation of one of their gods. So the children of Israel having to wrestle with all of this is God present in this world? And if so, in what way? Is he just ethereal and mystical and like a vapor and like a wind and like a spirit? Yes, he's that. 
but is he impersonal? And can he be somewhere with the children of Israel, with the people? In fact, Moses raises the question, God, are you going to go with us? Because if you don't go with us, I'm not even going to try to take this group of people any further. So there's a lot to think about. And at the same time, there's, a, there's this whole other topic, which is, if you want to follow God, how do you do it? What is necessary to follow the Lord? What is necessary to be right and to be in a condition of reconciliation with God? And how religious do you have to be in order to earn God's approval? That's a serious question. And people answer this question very differently, not only then, but they answer it differently now. Because some people think you can become religious enough that God will approve of you and will think that now you're really holy and you're acceptable. And if you keep this law and this tradition and you do this and you are good enough, then God will show mercy to you. And in the end, he'll weigh things out and he'll say, okay, there was more on the side for you than against you, so come into heaven and so forth. A lot of people think like that. A lot of people think, if I'm religious enough, it will make all things right. And this week's Torah portion gives an alternative, as does the Hof Torah, and as well, uh, some scriptures I want to share with you from the Brit HaChadashon. So let's Let's figure out how to start with our texts. I think it might be good to, um, to start with Exodus chapter 31. Let's just work on that for a little bit. This is where Moses is, is going to tell the people and tell some specific people about assignments that they have that are connected to them having received the Holy Spirit and gifts from the Holy Spirit. So some people think the Holy Spirit was only given for the very first time at Pentecost or Shavuot. But that is not when the Holy Spirit was first given. He was was given whenever he wanted to be given. But there was a prophetic promise through the prophet Joel that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh and blood. Now, if you're sitting next to someone who has flesh or blood, then sort of, you know, punch them on the shoulder in a gentle way and say, you're flesh and blood. God's promised to pour out his Holy Spirit on you. He will pour out his Holy Spirit on you. So let's read. Exodus chapter 31, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I have singled out, I've chosen Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I filled him with the Spirit of God. Let's repeat that. I have filled him with the Spirit of God. How many of you believe the Bible says what it's trying to say? It means what it's trying to say. And that when it's trying to say something clearly, it says it clearly. So with that in mind... You know what this means? I filled him with the Spirit of God. What that means is he's filled with the Spirit of God. That's right. You don't have to try to make it mean anything else or anything less. I filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge concerning every kind of artisanry. 
He is a master of design in gold, silver, bronze, cutting precious stones to be set, wood carving, and every other craft. I've also appointed as his assistant Aholiav, the son of Achisamach of the tribe of Dan. Moreover, I have endowed all the craftsmen. I have endowed all the craftsmen. That's what the Lord says. With the wisdom to make everything that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the ark cover above it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table and the utensils, the pure menorah, and all its utensils, the incense altar, the altar for for burnt offerings and all its utensils, the basin and its base, the garments for officiating, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his son so that they can serve in the office of Kohen, the anointing oil, and the incense of aromatic spices for the holy place, they are to make everything just as I have ordered you. They have the artistic ability, you see, but they're not to just go off on their own imaginations, they are to fulfill the design, the instructions, the colors, the materials, even the recipes that the Lord gives Moses to give to them. So in this way, they are showing that they have the Spirit of God because they are responsible to fulfill the direction that's being given to them. They demonstrate that they have the Spirit of God because they can receive instruction from the Lord through another person. Some people are super spiritual, and it's not with the Spirit of God that they're super spiritual. It's something else that's moving with them. And if a human being tells them to do something that they don't want to do or wasn't their idea, they're not going to do it. They're still subject to that idea of doing only what's right in their own hearts, which is a condition of waywardness rather than a condition of anointing. So here we're reading the names of specific people, their abilities, their skills, descriptions of their assignments, and as well we're, we're understanding something that there is a spiritual nature of their gifts. The Lord says, I have filled Bezalel with my Holy Spirit, with the Spirit of God. It's not just that he's a a great artist on his own. He's a great artist for me. There are many great artists who are not for the Lord. But Bezalel is for the Lord. Now, later on, while Moses is up on the mountain, the people who are waiting... They, they get antsy, they get nervous, and they start thinking incorrectly. They're not being led by the Spirit. They are being drawn to old ideas, old experiences of spirituality and godliness, things that they learn from other nations, not from those who serve the God of Israel. Now, the God of Israel is peculiar. Number one, he's not limited by geography. Every other nation thought of their God as being territorial. If you're in Egypt, you're under the Egyptian gods. But the God of Israel says, I am the Lord. Remember when Pharaoh says, who does the Lord think he is? Because Pharaoh thought he was an incarnation of God. 
And the idea that some other, some other God could have authority in his land, he doesn't even have a green card. He has no permission from the official government of Egypt to operate in that land. And Moses, who does he think he is? He's a fugitive from justice. In any case, Pharaoh basically said, I don't know who you think you are, but these people belong to me. And the Lord had to pry the children of Israel out of the hands, out of the grip of Pharaoh. And he was doing that for, for, for a reason. He wanted Egypt to know that the Lord was the Lord, but also he wanted Israel to know that the Lord was the Lord, that the Lord had authority, the Lord has power, the Lord has jurisdiction all over this planet. And there's a reason. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and all who dwell therein. So who does the earth belong to? The Lord. Okay, this, this may be challenging to some people. It doesn't belong to Mother Earth. So if you've been taught to give honor to Gaia, for instance, it's not correct. The Earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. So all creation. So the animals belong to the Lord. The ocean belongs to the Lord. The fish the great creatures of the ocean belong to the Lord. Even the living creatures in the depths of the ocean that haven't yet been discovered by humankind, they belong to the Lord. Those uh, microbes that live you know, in, the, in the depths of the ocean and that live in uh, volcanoes even, they belong to the Lord. And guess what? Not just microbes, we. We also belong to the Lord. You and I belong to the Lord. And so what's necessary for us is to understand who we belong to. This is very important so that we can have fulfilled lives and lives that are meaningful and full of service. But the children of Israel, while Moses is up on the mountain, they're not thinking clearly. (coughs) And they're not thinking correctly about how to live for God and how to express their religious motivations and their spiritual motivations as well. And so we read Exodus 32. The people gather around Aaron. Aaron's Moses' brother, remember that. He's also appointed to be the high priest. And they say to Moses, get to work. Get busy is one translation. Get busy. Make us gods to go ahead of us. Because this Moses, the man that brought us up from the land of Egypt, I mean, it's a funny way to say it, because Moses is Aaron's brother. But just in case you don't know which Moses we're talking about, Aaron, it's the one who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. You see, Moses spent, what was it, 40 days on the mountain? And the people are thinking, this isn't going to be good. He's gone. Well, he left once before. He was gone for 40 years. How long will he be? And so they come to Aaron and they say, you've got to make a God for us. We need something to worship. It will help us. And Aaron said, no, no, no. Wrong. 
wish that he had. Verse 2, Aaron says, well, have your wives and sons and daughters strip off their gold earrings and bring them to me. The people stripped off their gold earrings. They brought them to Aaron. He received what they gave him, melted it down, and made it into the shape of a calf. This is the golden calf. So think about this and how misdirected it is compared to the Teruma offering, that generous offering to build the sanctuary and the house of God that was at God's direction and used for God's purposes. There was giving, there was precious resources associated with it, there was even generosity, and there was some spirituality, but this is all wrong where the Teruma offering was blessed and good. He received what they gave him, melted it down, and made it into the shape of a calf. This also indicates something. It's in sharp contrast to Bezalel and his team and what they're assigned to do. And yet Aaron is using almost all the same skills and creativity that Bezalel has. Bezalel can work with gold. Bezalel can sculpt, as can his assistant and the artisans with him. And yet... Aaron was never assigned by God to do this. He has ability, he has creativity, he has motivation, he just doesn't have authorization. And it goes wrong. He does have authorization to intercede for the people. He does have authorization to connect the people, even when they're wayward, back to God and to encourage them to humble themselves, to confess their sins, to receive forgiveness through atoning sacrifice. He has that authorization, but he's not using it. He's going outside of his own boundaries of authority. And yet he's doing creative things. And I'm sure some of the people said, you know, we like what he's making better than what Bezalel does. Look at what the people said. They, uh, they make this announcement, Israel, here is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now they've just made this sculpture and they are now assigning divinity to it. It was gold earrings a minute ago a day before, last week. But now it's, it's uh, Kafka. And they're saying, this is your God. And in this way, Israel is acting like idolatrous nations, not like the people of God. Now the nations, even to this day, even, even believers who come from many nations still have this impulse to make representations of the Lord in order to facilitate their worship. Now, you'll notice that on our walls, we don't have any pictures of uh, Jesus at the Wailing Wall or Yeshua. We don't have statues that represent God. We don't even have paintings of God, two-dimensional works. We worship God in spirit and in truth but we don't want to make representations of God for ourselves. The children of Israel made what they called, what they understood was a representation, but then they treated it like it was actually God. 
Now on seeing this, this is verse five. On seeing what's happening, Aaron says, stop everyone. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves. What are we thinking? What are we doing? I'm sure he wishes he had. But on seeing this, Aaron builds an altar in front of the golden calf. And he proclaims, it's time for a new holiday. Tomorrow is a feast for Adonai. Let's make new holidays. So early the next morning, they got up, they offered burnt offerings, they presented peace offerings, and afterwards the people sat down to eat and drink and wished that the sentence stopped there. But it continues, it says, they got up to indulge in revelry, in immorality. So their their worship did not conform to what was pleasing to God. Their use of their own abilities uh, was wrong. It was misdirected. It wasn't dedicated to what God had authorized or what, what he wanted from them. But in many other ways, it met all the other objective conditions. It was creative. It was sincere. It was with precious goods. It was dedicated to the Lord. But look at the outcome. When all is said and done, it leads to immorality rather than to holiness. And so you learn from this that this approach to God does not work. When you try to make God into the image you want him to be represented by, it is death, not life. It will lead to sin, not to something good. So even though they used the same kinds of skills we'd earlier read about for Bezalel and his team, and they used them with a spiritual purpose, it wasn't the right spiritual purpose. But some people have a theology that's not based in any kind of reality. It's wishful thinking. It's this. Oh, but their intentions were good. And so surely God would have been pleased. Well, How do you know if your theological conclusions are correct? You compare them to what the scripture tells us. And then you find out if you got it right or wrong. So you guess God would love this. What does God say? I hate this. So then you have to adjust your theology. Or else you are going yourself away from the Lord. Do you see how that works? So now we learn something. God isn't pleased just by good intentions. He's not pleased just by spirituality. He's not pleased just by being creative and artistic. He wants something first. And that is a heart of love that will respond to God with humility, with trust, and with obedience. All these things are necessary. When I was a kid, I had a good Jewish friend, Sandy Felton. His uh, family, I think, originally came from Hungary because his name was, uh, his given name was uh, Shandor. And only Hungarian Jews would have such a name. Sandy Felton was a good friend of mine, and he and I used to hang out uh, together a lot, especially during the summer. 
And when we were about 10 years old, we were together for too long. He, his family had moved to another city, but he came to stay for like two weeks with us. And we got irritated with each other. Do you know how boys can be? And what, what starts as like roughhousing turns into something else? Well, I ended up hurting him. <laughs> and he got mad. And he, he, he got mad. He was angry that I hurt him. And I understand. And he said, you need to apologize. And so I apologized. Because I, I actually didn't mean to hurt him. You know, he was right. I was wrong. So I apologized. And then he said, well, if you're sorry, why'd you do it in the first place? <laughs> At the time, I could not answer that question. And today, while I'm standing here before you remembering that, it's like the Holy Spirit brought that to mind and said, so what's your answer now? And I still don't have an answer. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) When we're sincere... It's not enough. We have to show love too. And I guess what Sandy was saying, you you weren't being nice to me. So why'd you do that? You know, why wouldn't you be nice to your best friend? And the answer is there's no good answer. We should be good. When I look at Aaron and the golden calf incident, and I see that, that God is, is very thorough in his critique, as is Moses when he comes down. They absolutely don't want Israel to live like this. And they, you know, this may go against your thinking of trying to be positive and encouraging people for the good intentions they have. Moses doesn't come down and say, well, Aaron, you really are artistic. Yeah, I didn't realize how creative you are. And what a calf. That is the most beautiful golden calf I've ever seen. You know, you are really a good boy. He didn't try to build up Aaron's self-esteem. Do you hear what I'm saying? That is not a modern sensibility, is it? Where you're always trying to look at the good Instead, Moses says, what did they do to you that would cause you to do this? Uh, They uh, said they didn't know where you were. How did they threaten you? Uh, They said, uh, make a God. What were you thinking? Yeah. Now, this is in the Bible. And so when we meet Aaron, let's not, he's paid the penalty. Let's, let's not go to him and say, what were you thinking? <laughs> because he might reflect on some of the things we've done and say to us, what were you thinking? You know, I saw that. I was in that cloud of witnesses. What were you thinking? 
When we make these kinds of substitutions that are really misdirected effort, they're not necessarily pleasing to God. They may not be obviously evil, but in God's eyes, they are evil. And in the eyes of the people who are doing them, they may be justifiable because they're so similar to what they thought was being asked for or what was appropriate. And that's what actually makes it insidious because this is the nature of counterfeit. True counterfeits try to pass as the real thing. Last night I was comparing it to uh, counterfeit money. Can you imagine if, if, if one of you gets some, you know, some paper about the size of a dollar bill and you get some green crayons and you make dollar signs in the corners and you put one there and you draw you know, a nice happy face and sign it, and you write one dollar in the right places, and then you make a bunch of them. You got a whole stack, and you go somewhere, and you try to buy something, and you try to pay with these Crayola currency. The people will not think that you're a counterfeiter. They'll think you're an idiot. (laughs) And the more you have, the bigger the idiot you will be. Counterfeiting has to be close enough that to the casual observer it looks like the real thing. And that is the nature of this and what makes it so insidious. Because it looks to many people like it's the real thing when it's not. Counterfeit spirituality, misdirected spirituality can be just as dangerous as evil things that have no connection to what you think is true spirituality. These substitutions are counterfeit. Now let's go to the Haftorah portion. I want to show you something and then we'll wrap up in in a passage from the book of Romans. Remember the Torah portion is talking about spiritual matters and people who are filled with the spirit and actually deals with the issue of God's presence. You'll have to read this in Exodus chapter 34 looking in verse 5. It says something that is contrary to uh, modern rabbinic thought and contrary to uh, Aristotelian logic and and Greek philosophy and contrary to Islamic thought because it speaks about the physical presence of God. And all of those uh, religious groups have come up with a theology that excludes the physical presence of God in our universe and has developed many doctrines around that. But you'll see in Exodus 34, you should look on your own, the Hebrew is simple and it's clear. It says God came down and he stood next to Moses. Now how did Moses know God was standing next to him? Answer, he knew. He knew. With his senses, he knew. How did he know that God was standing there? He saw. He experienced. There are a lot of other ways of describing this, but when you say standing next to in Hebrew, you know what that means? 
It means standing next to. The person sitting next to you, smile at them and say, I'm glad you, I can recognize you're sitting and you're sitting next to me. You see, you have the ability to know if someone's sitting next to you. You have the ability to know if someone's standing next to you. Torah, which is God's instruction to us and true, describes this. God came down. What does that mean? He came down. He stood next to Moses. What does that mean? He stood next to Moses. And then he did something wild that fits into Messianic theology quite comfortably, but not into all these other groups. The Lord standing next to Moses calls out to the Lord who's passing by. Now you can only be one place at a time. The Lord is not limited in the way that you are. And so the Lord standing next to Moses calls out to the Lord passing by. And this is a way that Torah is teaching us that God can be in more than one place, in more than one manifestation at the same time. That's critically important in order to understand the Haftorah portion, which is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel describes this, this dispersion for unbelief and for idolatry. And then in verse 26, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put, I will put a religious spirit in you. No. I will put ruachi, my spirit, in you. Where? Within you. Inside of you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and to do them. So do you see the sequence and how important this is? When you turn to God with all of your heart and you humble yourself and repent and acknowledge your sin and with sincerity confess your sin. You, you need a sacrifice. And this is where Yeshua comes in. This is the sacrifice that you need and that I need for all time. A living sacrifice. A sacrifice we couldn't provide for ourselves. And, and we accept God's sacrifice and God accepts us. And then what happens? He gives us a new spirit. His spirit in us. So look at the sequence. You receive the spirit of God this way and then you walk with God. The alternative doesn't work. I'm going to try to be as religious and good as I can and hopefully I will deserve God's approval and the Holy Spirit. It will not work. It does not work that way and no matter how long you try you can't do it and nobody can. With that in mind, let's turn to the book of Romans and this is where we're going to wrap up. Romans chapter 8. And remember, Paul is writing to these new believers in Rome. They're Italian. But they're new believers. 
and they don't fully understand everything, but they have connected with the God of Israel, with the people of Israel, and with um, the Messiah of Israel, but they're still struggling. How do you live a life worthy of God? How do you live this life of faith? And so Paul in Romans chapter 8 is trying to explain something very clearly. And, and I'm going to use a free translation. I didn't, free translation, my own translation. I sort of worked on this myself. It, it, I wasn't fully satisfied with the English translations that I was looking at. No one of them captured everything I was trying to get at. And some of them sort of went in the wrong direction. This is a little colloquial, but it, I think it'll make sense to you. Because it captures some very essential ideas. Romans 8, starting in verse 5. When people are dominated by the sinful nature, they focus their thinking on sinful things. That's what that verse is all about. And it says then, people who are being led by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So when you're dominated by your sinful nature, You think about sinful things. It occupies you. You may even try to control that, but you're still under the domination of your sinful nature. But people who are being led by the Holy Spirit, they think freely about what's pleasing to God. Verse 6, when you, this is my translation, when you let your sinful nature run the show, your sinful nature will control your mind, And that leads to death. But letting the Holy Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Say that with me. Life and peace. Verse 7. In fact, the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's instructions or His commands, and it never will. It never did, and it never will. And that's why, verse 8, that's why those who are still dominated by their sinful nature cannot really please God. Verse 9, now that you belong to God through Messiah, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are not under its domination. You are not subjugated by your sinful nature. How do you... How do you Know this and how do you live it out? In fact, it's a very simple and straightforward thing. When, when you humble yourself in repentance and you come to the Lord, he gives some clear instructions. Repent, receive forgiveness, be immersed in water, be immersed in the Holy Spirit. The immersion in water is what you and I do to identify with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Messiah. And this is what we are supposed to do for our sinful nature. We are supposed to bury it. That we would be raised from the dead. Now you might say, well, I've got another kind of spiritual approach. I don't think that's going to work. I tried that. But I can tell you this. This is God's approach. Act it out. Do what he says. Be immersed in water because of your faith. And when you do that, you know what? You come up a new creation. When I did that, it took me months after I was believing Yeshua was the Lord, it took me months to come to the place where I was willing to be immersed in water because I thought, I'm going to get in trouble. 
So I was immersed in water, and the next night I was disinherited from my family. But I was ready. And they, my mother thought I'd become a Nazi by this action, or an anti-Semite. It took seven years for them to change their perspective about us. But I can tell you this, whenever I talked to her, it was with a clear conscience before God about who I was and what I was. And I remained faithful to God and to the Jewish people and am still faithful to this day. But my sinful nature, though I wrestle with it, it does not dominate me. How do I know this? Because God tells me this, that I have authority over it. Not just my authority, but the Holy Spirit in me. Let's read on. Now that you belong to God through Messiah, that's the condition. You belong to God through Messiah. You are not controlled by your sinful nature. Do you see how that works? When you belong to God through Messiah, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. Since you have the Spirit of God living in you, you are being led by the Spirit. And Messiah, the Spirit of Messiah, Messiah lives within you so that even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been restored to God. The Spirit of God who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you. The Spirit of God who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you. This is the answer to the question, so how do you live for God? Is it just by controlling all your negative impulses? Is it by doing any religious thing that comes to your mind? No, it's by coming to God with humility and repentance on God's terms. It's by receiving the forgiveness that's only available to those who receive atoning sacrifices that God accepts. And in our case, it's through Messiah Yeshua. And then it's by being open to him to receive his Holy Spirit and to count as dead the sinful nature that once dominated you, but now cannot dominate you. You're actually free. Now, you may not know you're free. You may not act like you're free. This is what Paul was recognizing in the Romans, and he said, you have to know you're free to serve the Lord because you've received the Holy Spirit. You have to know you belong to God, because once you know this, you can live for him, and everything else will be different. So with that in mind, I want to pray for anyone who needs that freedom, for anyone who needs to, 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 to walk in this experience of freedom with God through Messiah by the Holy Spirit. And if you need that freedom, just receive the instruction from the scriptures as I pray for you. Lord, I thank you that in Messiah we can live for you. I thank you that You promised to give us a new spirit and a new heart. Your spirit, not our spirit. And that you make us into new creations through Messiah. We want to live for you through your power, through your grace, through your mercy, according to your instructions, according to your Torah, according to your scriptures. And we want to serve you all the days of our lives. We pray this in Yeshua's name. 
Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing, and then parents, please go get your children from the Shabbat school without delay. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yasem lecha. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.